We're going to read this evening from Genesis chapter 2, verse 1. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created, when the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Now no shrub had yet appeared on the earth, and no plant had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth, and there was no work, no one to work the ground. But streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden was a tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river watering the garden flowed from Eden. From there it was separated into four headwaters. The name of the first is the Pishon. It winds through the entire land of Havilah, where there is gold. The gold of that land is good. Aromatic resin and onyx are also there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It winds through the entire land of Cush. The name of the third river is the Tigris. It runs along the east side of Asher. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. It's the word of God. And so uh, let's pray together that we would indeed stand in awe of him as we try to understand um, something more of these great chapters. Heavenly Father, I do thank you that you are completely other to us. We'll learn in a couple of weeks' time what it means that we are made in your image. But we also have to acknowledge that you are God and we are not. You have no limitations. We have so many limitations. But I pray, Father, as we engage with this subject that can be troubling for many. Uh, We're living in a world where so many see faith and science as incompatible. I pray that you would be our teacher. You'd help us, help us to learn together, help us in our question and answer time to help each other. And may we leave here with greater confidence in your word, but more importantly, with a bigger view of you. I pray that you'd be our helper now, for Jesus' sake. Amen. Great, well, we're, um, we're tackling some of those questions. Um, the questions seem to be getting harder each week, but I can not blame myself because I put the series together. But I hope they've been helpful so far. Um, just to say, last week, um, Martin Walker helpfully asked the question, um, when are you going to address the question of where is Eden? Um, I stalled on him last week, and there was lots of jokes going around about, well, buying yourself more time to actually figure out what you reckon is the answer. Uh, but I actually realize now that in that little, um, the, the breakdown of the weeks I gave us all in the first week, I actually put that as a question for the fifth week because we're thinking about the tree of life and particularly the Garden of Eden. So <laughs> that's kind of handy, eh? Do you see what I did there? Um, so Martin, Martin's away, I think, but if he's listening to this, then it will come up. I'm not ducking the question. Uh, the second thing to say is this week, um, it's a bit sort of Bible light in that there's not a, a particular passage we're going to look at in great depth. Um, I hope that that won't come too much of a surprise to us, because as we've been looking over the last couple of weeks, 
Um, I've been trying to help us to see that Genesis 1 and 2 is not a scientific textbook, though it has much that engages with the world of science. And so there's not a sort of go-to passage, which is sort of a clincher to answer all the questions we may have on this subject. But I hope that more than looking in detail at a particular passage, and we'll do that much more in two weeks' time when we come back to the series and we think about the question, uh, what does it mean to be made in the image of God? I hope what um, we can do together tonight is have a think about how we think as Christians. Um, because that's a really important thing to do as well, because actually that will affect the way that we then read the Bible. Um, so what we're going to do, um, we're gonna, I'm going to do a sort of a brief little history lesson at the beginning and then um, work through a few bits, and we'll have pause for some uh, question and answer, and then depending on how we're going, do a little bit more, and then we'll have a bit of time with um, a kind of questions to the front like last time, um, and then try and pull things together at the end. But here's something for us all to think about. Um, I'll try to keep this as simple as I can. I appreciate that some people here have done loads of thinking and reading on this. For others, this is completely new. Um, I'm going to go dead simple to help us. Um, and you'll see why I want to do a little history lesson in a minute. But here's a brief history lesson of the last few centuries in terms of this whole idea of faith and science. And the reason this is so crucial to get, even in a very simple way, is I want to make the point that you and I are the product of history. We don't live in a kind of cultural vacuum. And the things that have been thought in the years before hugely affect the way that we'll address this particular question. So let's have a think together. Uh, if you know anything about the 17th century, it was a period of history called the scientific uh, revolution. Um, and uh, many people, if you read books of this, the, the posh word for this is empiricism. Uh, a normal word that most of us would use is measurement. It was a, a century where everything was measured and there was an explosion in botany and in astronomy and in mathematics and in science. Everyone was just obsessed with measuring stuff. Uh, and it was really the beginning of science as we know it. I mentioned last week um, Isaac Newton, who um, uh, formulated the laws of gravity and l- laws of motion, which we'll have learned about in school and physics lessons. And you might have heard of names, people like um, Galileo, people like... Uh, Francis Bacon, Robert Boyle, these are sort of famous scientists. They were all operating in this century when everything was measured. So there's a measuring tape there to help us. But the interesting thing about each of these men, to varying degrees, they were all believers in God. Now that's really important because science as we know it was actually rooted in the Christian faith. In fact, it was the Christian faith and men like these who really um, drove forward the scientific endeavor. And that's really important when we come to think about the sort of anxiety a lot of people have today about faith and science. Science actually arose in a Christian context. Um, Robert Boyle, he was famous for saying that science is a means of exploring God's goodness. Um, Francis Bacon, not to be confused with Kevin Bacon, the actor, uh, he said knowledge is a way, um, knowledge is a demonstration of God's power. As we learn about God's creation, it's a demonstration of God's power. So we really need to grasp that, that... Um, science actually grew up in a Christian environment and was driven largely by Christian scientists, certainly in the early days. And it was really the Christian worldview that helped science to flourish, which is quite counterintuitive if you think about some of the debates that are going on today. You move on a century and you get this period called the Enlightenment. Uh, And the big thing in this century was these two buzzwords, knowledge and reason. So people um, based all their understanding on what seems right, reason, And it was all about knowledge. How much knowledge can we acquire? Um, Some people called it the age of reason. Um, You might have heard of people like uh, this, Immanuel Kant. If you've done some RE at school or some science, you've heard of people like Immanuel Kant. He was a German philosopher. He said, God exists but is unknowable. 
So there's been a bit of a shift from the century before. But here was a man who, who thought reason was kind of Lord. Whatever made sense was right. Now, here's a little quote from Immanuel Kant. He said, one age cannot, on oath, put the next age in a position where it would be impossible to extend or correct its knowledge. Bit of a mouthful. Just have a think about that. What's helpful about that? And what's dangerous about that? Any ideas? What's helpful about that as a quote? Great. So there's something positive about this. Knowledge is built on. We have this amount of knowledge and we grow and we learn more things. So there's a real sense of positivity. But what's really dangerous about what he's saying? Good. And we'll come to that. There's no absolutes. And Kant was one of these guys who was leading towards um, this, this sort of understanding. You know the other guy on the right, Jean-Jacques Rousseau, famous for kind of the French Revolution? Now he was what's called, he joined a group of what were called encyclopedists. Now if you know what an encyclopedia is... Can anyone guess what the encyclopedists were all about? It's not a quick trick question, it's dead simple. Building knowledge. So these were a group of people who wanted to write down everything about everything. Remember the century before was all about measuring? These guys wrote down everything. And they had these enormous volumes where they were trying to basically put all the knowledge in one place. And they seemed to believe that if the world came to an end, all knowledge would be held in these great encyclopedias and humankind would be able to carry on. It's rather bizarre, but they wrote everything down. But Jean-Jacques Rousseau, he famously said, humans are fundamentally good. A man's goodness is weighed by his motives. Now think about where that could lead us. And this was a time where the creeds and the confessions of the church were increasingly being challenged. So as you're going to see as we continue to work through um, this sort of time chart. You can see the movement there's been from one century to the next. Knowledge, which is a really positive thing, it grew up in a Christian context, increasingly is growing, but you can see some problems bubbling away. Well, let's follow it through. You get to the 19th century, uh, and this is really a period of what was called humanism. Uh, it's a period of history where human beings were at the center of everything. Uh, because human beings were growing in their understanding and knowledge all the time, people were looking to human beings more and more for answers. Human beings are so clever. Human beings have discovered so much. This was a period of what was called progressive revolution, a revelation. And as Alan's pointed out, truth became really fluid. So one of the things you might read in books is a, a little phrase called the God of the gaps. And what happens? Imagine this here, as I'm explaining my arms. Imagine this is the sum total of knowledge. And at one point in history, this much knowledge we have and this much we can't explain. Science would explain this much. And the rest would just be put down to God, the God of the gaps. What we don't know, we just say, well, God did that. But can you see what happens when our knowledge grows? What happens to what people put down to God? It gets smaller and smaller and smaller. And so this idea of the God of the gaps meant that increasingly human knowledge took over and God got increasingly squeezed out of people's thinking, squeezed out of science. Think as well what was happening at this time. Uh, steam. We know that in the 15th century the printing press was designed, but by 
uh, the 19th century, we had mass-powered steam printing. So you've got these ideas that are propagating. More and more knowledge, God getting smaller and smaller, and then stuff gets printed more and more and more. What else did the steam, steam create? A bit of massive bit of technology at this time. Trains. So you've got people writing stuff down more and more, it getting published quicker and quicker, and then steam trains and other forms of mobility moving this stuff all over the world. These ideas that began quite small suddenly go everywhere. So it's not a coincidence. And it was at this time, you might have heard of this man, I hope you will. He's buried in Westminster Chapel in London, Charles Darwin. He wrote this very famous uh, book, Origin of the Species, in 1859, whilst on board his, uh, the voyage uh, on board his uh, ship called the Beagle. And we all understand Charles Darwin, and you'll see on the backs of cars, rather than the ichthus, the Christian symbol, increasingly people are putting a picture of a reptile with Darwin written in it to kind of say, this is what I believe. Well, Charles Darwin was writing at this kind of time. And at the same time, in education, you've got some of these famous chaps that you might have heard of. Uh, John Maynard Keynes, who was the famous economist. Bertrand Russell, the famous philosopher. And then Friedrich Nietzsche, who famously declared, God is dead. So can you see how, just over three centuries... Something that began as a really positive thing, knowledge, a way of exploring God's world, increasingly became kind of a human thing, which mankind became incredibly proud about, and God just got more and more squeezed out. And then the printing press transports some of these very influential thinkers and writers, and increasingly you can see where this is going. Obviously, towards the end of the century, you've got, in the early 20th century, you've got fascism, this kind of very um, severe authoritarianism, which basically believed you were either the authority or you were subject to the authorities. And then what comes next? World War I, World War II, great destruction. So there were some really dangerous thinkers during this period. It was also the period when the National Secular Society um, grew up. So you can see what's happening. You then get to the 20th century, as God has increasingly been squeezed out. It's a period of relativism. There's no such thing as absolute truth, which is quite an ironic statement, because that's an absolute statement. But this is what people... Uh, are speaking of in the 20th century. And many of us grew up through some of this time. Um, and, you know, you go to sort of 1960s, 1970s, it was all about love, wasn't it? Just love one another. But the problem is Christianity at this time increasingly got challenged because the Christian faith was making exclusive claims uh, and people didn't like it. So the 20th century was a, a very difficult time. It was a time of relativism, a time of polytheism, but a belief in lots and lots of gods. You've got freedom to believe and choose whatever you want to think. Then you get to the 21st century. I wonder what you would put there. What are the big thoughts that we have today? I made the point in the first week that um, many people who claim to be atheists, there is a certain convenience about being an atheist because if you don't believe in God, then you're not answerable to anyone for your actions. But I think the 21st century really is underpinned by hedonism, just the search for pleasure, perhaps materialism. And we're living in this kind of a century. So just as you look through this little time chart, you can see, and this is very much a, an overview, it's very sort of broad brushstroke, you can see where this debate about science and knowledge has collided and where the issues have perhaps grown up. But we are a product of our past. Now, of course, the writer of Ecclesiastes was very wise. He said, there's nothing new under the sun. What I'd like you to do is read the verses underneath. If you're listening um, to the tape later, it's Romans chapter 1. Have a read of verses 18 to 25, which really explain all that we've just witnessed. Romans chapter 1, verse 18. 
and verses 22 to 25. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools, and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images. Therefore God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity, for the degrading of their bodies one with another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and they worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator. So do you see how this really speaks and explains all that we've witnessed? The 17th century, science grew up in a Christian context. It was Christian people who were driving the scientific endeavor. But increasingly, as knowledge grew and as mankind put themselves at the center, God got squeezed out. And what we see, as Paul writes in Romans 1, is exactly true. Exchanging the truth of God for a lie. And we're living in a culture now where God is increasingly being squeezed out. And so we've got this sort of uh, conflict today, which is why we want to address this question. The conflict, it seems, between science and faith. Which one is authoritative? Now, here's a question for you. I don't know if you've ever seen a knife at the front. I'm not going to do anything dangerous with this. But if I hold up this knife and I say to you, is this a knife or a piece of metal? Yes, there we go. Brilliant. It's both, isn't it? If I said to you, uh, what material is this made of? You would say metal but a plastic in the handle. If I asked you what implement is this, you would say it's a knife. You see, it's different questions, but both answers are the same. Give you another one. I'll stick this over here, it's a bit safer over here. Give you another one. If I said to you, um, how does water boil? Most of you would say, oh, well, I just flick on the switch. But how else does water boil? Well, when you inject energy into water molecules and they begin to rub together and they expand, they move faster and faster, they knock into each other, and eventually water evaporates and becomes steam. How does a kettle boil? Is it the switch or is it that scientific explanation I've just given you? You see, they're both true, but they're trying to do different things. And one of the things we looked at in the first week is that theology is primarily focused with what and who. Science is primarily focused on how and why. They're asking different questions. They are separate. They're not distinct from one another. One can speak into the other. The other can speak into the other. They work together, but they are distinct. They're asking different questions. So if we come to Genesis 1 and 2 and we treat it like scientific textbook, we get into all sorts of problems. It's not written as science, but it helps us understand science. So we need to focus on, as we look at a passage of Scripture, is it mostly focusing on the who and the what, or the how and the why? Is it primarily theology? Is it science? Because depending on the questions you ask... The answers will be very different, but they're not necessarily in conflict with each other. This is exactly why John Lennox, who I mentioned last week, wrote this book to try and challenge some of the so-called new atheists. He's saying, don't make what's called a category mistake of confusing theology with science. And he basically goes to town here, and it's a brilliant book where he pulls apart lots of the arguments that some of these new atheists have saying you're arguing in complete category mistakes, you're mixing different types of writing, different types of understanding, uh, and you're crossing your own wires, and that's causing issues. But the amazing thing is the Bible's not ashamed of science. So have a look down at uh, Genesis uh, 1 and 2. Now, there's not loads in this that explains this, but there are little clues. I want you just to have a look at a couple of things. 
I think that the created order, as explained in Genesis 1 and 2, actually gives us great grounds for science. Here's a couple of examples. Look at Genesis 1, 28 and 29. God says, I give you plants and fruit as food. Now, I'm guessing with that command, it wasn't just a command to just get eating. I'm guessing that when people went around eating different fruits, they were also talking about the fruits and the foods they were eating. They were trying to understand them. They were perhaps naming them. There's kind of science going on. You talk about your food, you don't just eat it. Look at chapter 2, verse 9. There's a description here that the food that mankind was eating in the garden was pleasing to the eye. But when you see something that's pleasing to your eye, you don't just look at it, just staring at it. You ask questions about it. You talk about it. Look at that, it's beautiful. Well, perhaps that was what was happening in the garden. You've got the beginnings of science. As they were looking at something that was pleasing to the eye, presumably they're asking questions about it. They're grappling, what is this? Chapter 2, verse 15, the command to Adam to work and take care of the ground. Well, how can you take care of the earth if you don't understand it? The more that we have understood agriculture, the more advanced agriculture has been over the centuries. But the first command, work and take care of the ground, fantastic. And God's people start doing that, but they're also trying to understand the ground, understand what grows where, how do things fit together. There's science going on even here. And then chapter 2, 19 and 20, where Adam names the animals. Well, isn't things like species identification and taxonomy exactly what science is all about? And they're beginning to do that in the garden. The point is, there seems to be little clues here in Genesis 1 and 2 that science is a gift from God. Uh, a guy I used to work with uh, in my previous church said um, he, he liked to think of science as rooting through God's socks drawer. I think it's a lovely little phrase, isn't it? God's given us this incredible world and he's given us this great gift of science to try to begin to understand some of the complexity of the amazing world he's created. And you get little clues of science being there right at Genesis 1 and 2 at the beginning. I'm just going to pause there for a second before we sort of jump on. Um, Does anyone want to come back on any of that? Any observations, any things that you could share which would be helpful for us to think about together? Particularly, uh, I'll go back to it, particularly thinking about Maybe some of this historical stuff and the progression of understanding. It, John Lennox argues in one of his books, in, in um, God's Undertaker, the book that I just showed you, uh, he said, uh, just be careful, statements by scientists are not always statements of science. Let's just have a little think about um, the three sort of, there's, there's really three big ways that you can understand this sort of evolution question. We'll try and start here and then uh, see where we get with it. Um, it's hugely complicated, there's so much that can be said, so I'm going to, again, try and keep it simple. Um, natural evolution, this is, I'm going to speak about natural evolution, evolution with a big E, okay? Um, this is, the, the sort of premise behind this is um, that you and I live in a random, impersonal universe. You and I are the product of gradual evolutionary change, totally devoid of God. So this is the kind of big thing that atheists would, would say, that we're all just the product of evolutionary change. There's something I read this week that I hadn't appreciated. We all talk about evolution with a big E, and we automatically think Charles Darwin, origin of the species, the, the voyage on the beagle. Interestingly, uh, Darwin was actually a deist. He believed in God. Uh, it was only later in his life, if you actually read some of his biographies and some of his uh, stuff he wrote when he was on his ship, it was only later in his life that he increasingly turned his back on God. But Darwin himself actually thought that belief in God 
and his theory of evolution and natural selection weren't necessarily incompatible. He didn't understand how they were linked. But actually, he had more of an understanding of God than, than most people give him credit. He wasn't an out-and-out atheist, just worth being aware of that. The bigger, the bigger guy who actually had much more of an impact on this big natural evolution was Aldous Huxley, um, who was a very negative guy. He, he was the first one who took the theory, Darwin's theory of evolution, and used it to as- attack the Christian faith. So when you think about natural evolution, don't just think Darwin, think Huxley. Um, a lot of people sort of don't know that. I didn't know that, but actually it's uh, helped me quite a bit. And now there's tons of things that we said on this. Here's just two things. If you're here and you would call yourself an atheist, or if you know someone who is, here are the two big things that I would challenge you with, and perhaps two things if you're a Christian that you can um, take to someone who is an atheist and says, oh, the world just came into being. The two big problems with believing evolution with a big E are um, probability and morality. Now, I'm not a mathematician, so I won't understand these numbers great, but you can chat to Norman if you want some help with this. Uh, one, one mathematician has said, uh, you take a molecule, I'm not a scientist either, so I'm speaking out my depth here, but if you take a molecule, it's made up of atoms, and for a molecule to be stable, the atoms have to be arranged in a particular order, right? If the atoms are in the wrong order, it becomes unstable. Is that more or less right? Yeah, good. Okay. Well, one scientist has said that if you have a molecule with 100 atoms which are arranged in the correct order to make it stable, the chance of that happening by chance is 1 to the power 158. Sorry, 10 to the power 158. So that's 10 with 158 noughts on the end. That's for one molecule. Well, if you take that statistic, if that's right, and you scale that up to understand the human body... The odds of a human evolving by chance are 10 to the power 2 trillion. That's 2,000 million. Now, I only throw that out there because people who like to say, well, the world just came into being, often also like to be scientists. They like statistics, they like mathematics. Well, if you just show them that, it actually takes far more faith to believe that the world came into, chance, uh, into being by chance than it does to believe the Christian worldview that the world was created and yet people will throw out these things, or the, girl, the, the world was just a chance. Probability would say, actually, you're very unwise to simply think that the world came into being by chance. Second thing is morality. Now, I want to be a bit careful with this, but if someone said to me that they were an atheist, I would probably ask them the question, um, does it bother you when someone dies? And I didn't say that cruelly, but I would ask the question, and I, I'm sure the response would be, well, of course it does. And I'd say to them, have you ever screamed out loud in your heart, that's not the way it ought to be? When you see something horrific happen on the news, it's not the way it ought to be. Well, think about it. If natural evolution is all about random evolutionary change, then why is there such a thing as what ought to be? It's all just random anyway. And yet the human nature screams out when things aren't as they ought to be. So just just two things to think about as you approach these people who sort of propagate natural evolution with a big E. Think about probability. It takes a lot more faith to believe in natural evolution than it does to believe in a creator. And think about morality. Because there's no human being, really, who will, at one point in their life, not cry out, that's not the way it ought to be. But if the world is just random, there's no such thing as what ought to be. It's just what is. The uh, sort of second um, view which I guess seeks to address this, is what's called theistic evolution. So it's evolution with a small e, and it's theistic. It's all about God and evolution. And the big guy who sort of championed this was a Christian man called Dennis Alexander. And he was trying to 
help people who don't think that necessarily you have to throw the baby out of the bathwater. There could have been some sort of evolutionary process that brought the world into being, but God was the source of it. So it answers the origin question. Um, so basically what theistic evolutionists would understand is that God kicked it off the world, uh, quite possibly through a kind of big bang. And, and so if you held this view, you could perfectly reasonably as a Christian believe that there was a big bang, just God was behind it. And then God has intervened in different sort of epochs of history and brought creation on. But God hasn't sort of been integrally involved. He sort of stood at a distance. Natural processes, which he has ordained, have taken over. And then he stepped in and kind of altered things along the way. Uh, Well, that's what um, quite a lot of people increasingly um, like. And the reason people like this as an idea is that it takes science seriously. Because it's trying to understand we've got a lot of scientific knowledge and uh, we want to use science. It also takes the Bible seriously because it wants to believe that God started it all off, that God has controlled it. And what it tries to do is say that mechanism, um, how stuff happens, doesn't have to deny agency, how it, how it kicked off. In other words, God could have kicked off this process, but the agency, with, uh, the mechanism with which he used to bring the world into being could have been evolution uh, in varying degrees. Now, we'll come back to that because maybe some of you have read some of this. Maybe you understand this. But the problem that I feel is with this view is that it does assume that only naturalistic answers are possible. And sometimes it gives too much weight to science and and takes all our understanding of science and kind of imports that onto the Bible. uh, And it can challenge our understanding of the Bible. So there are issues with it. Um, Now, we'll come back to that when we have some questions. But they're the two sort of modifications. There's the big evolution, the Darwin, the Huxley thing, which atheists would hold. And then there's this sort of middle line. Interestingly, um, Dennis Alexander called this the third way because the far other extreme is what's called intelligent design. And we'll look at that in a minute. He wanted this middle way because he found that people were jumping to too many extremes. I think it was um, a useful approach, but all sorts of problems with it. I'm just going to pause there. I want us to watch a little video. This was a Honda advert that came out um, a little while ago. Watch it carefully and listen out for the punchline right at the end. Thanks, Kathy. Joe, I don't know if I'm right or wrong, but that's what I imagine undergrads, Santa Andrew, I spend their time at university doing. Um, isn't it nice when things just work? Now, we're going to come, there's an, an, another PowerPoint slide that's going to kick in now. This is, the, this is the real clincher, I think. You've got on one extreme natural evolution with a big E, Darwin Huxley. You've got this kind of middle way that has some helpful things to say, but I think it's got some major issues. Uh, The far end is intelligent design. Uh, And interestingly here, um, the understanding here is that this sort of debate that we get obsessed with, creation versus evolution, people who help us understand intelligent design say, look, we're asking the wrong questions. That's not really where the debate is. The debate is much more about design versus accident. That's where we need to spend our time. We can spend hours and hours getting bogged down in the detail. How did the world come into being? Was there evolution, microevolution or not? As Christians, we can have different understandings of this. And I think Genesis allows for different understandings of it. But the big thing that we need to really think about ourselves and maybe push other people on is this idea of design and accident. That's where the advert's helpful. Isn't it interesting or nice when things just work? Well, this is what um, intelligent design is saying. Now, you, you read something like Charles Darwin's um, Origin of the Species. The amazing thing about this is it can explain uh, small-scale changes that give certain animals functional advantage, but it can't explain origin. 
Uh, so if you read any of the books on this, they'll talk about um, the experiment that's done with finches' beaks, the finch, the bird, that science can explain variation, and, and microevolution can explain small variation in the size of a beak, the beaks of a finch, but cannot explain where a finch came from. And that's the big problem with evolution, as, as many people hold to it, is that it can't answer the origin question. The really helpful contribution that intelligent design has is it t- teaches us two things. One about origin. You know, you watch that little video of how this car, as it were, came to be. It doesn't really matter how it came to be. The point is something made that series of events start. Well, what was that something? The other big thing that um, intelligent design is helpful with is it, it talks about um, information. And this is something Philip spoke about in the first week, helpfully. Uh, there's so much complexity and in information in a single cell this kind of language in DNA, I had no idea about this, but apparently every single cell in the human body contains the whole genome twice. Almost as if there's kind of information backup in case something goes wrong. The human body is astonishingly complex. And if you want to think about this a bit more, have a read of this book, Signature in the Cell, because this guy helps us to see that there is just so much information in an individual cell you can't possibly logically believe that we were just created by chance. Information had to come from somewhere. And I think that's um, particularly worth thinking about. Now, I'm going to pause there. These are sort of three viewpoints. I just wanted to map that out because we'll all sit somewhere, I'm hoping, kind of over here. Um, otherwise, perhaps we'll have some words later. But it'd be good to have um, some questions or comments, things that you're grappling with, things you're not sure about. I perhaps won't answer them now, but if we just get a collection of some of the issues that are in your mind at this point, then maybe um, in a few moments when we have a bit of a Q&A, we can work on that, some of that together. <laughs> I wasn't going to say this, but I will now. One of the questions is just uh, how do we help our children. I think the single most important statement that's ever been written or spoken is Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God. I think that has so much to help us with. And if you're a parent, I would just encourage you to think through with your children what does that mean. Um, I was surprised the question of um, circularity didn't come up. Uh, I, just, I, I wasn't going to do this, but I think it would be helpful because I'm sure we'll ask. Um, this is a slightly tongue-in-cheek. Okay, so here's, here's two people. Um, uh, so a Christian guy says, uh, you should believe that Jesus is Lord of the whole universe and created everything. Uh, this unbeliever, why? Because the Bible says so. Why should I believe what the Bible says? Because it's the word of a trustworthy God. Why should I believe in the, it's the word of a trustworthy God? Because it says so. Hang on, so I'm meant to believe the Bible because the Bible says that I should believe the Bible? Yes. Ha, you're arguing in a circle. You're assuming your conclusion is your premise. And then the Christian says, yes, exactly. And so when it comes to arguing for ultimate authority, so do you. Do you remember our conversation last week? And it went like this. So the unbeliever says, you should believe there's no God. Christian says, why? Because my reasoning processes tell me so. But why should I believe your reasoning processes? Because we're bound to believe what's reasonable and reject what's unreasonable. Why should I believe what we're bound to believe, what is reasonable, and reject what's unreasonable? Because it's reasonable to do so. So I'm meant to believe what's reasonable because reason tells me that I should believe that it's reasonable. Yes. And so I give us that illustration. Um, if some of you, uh, if that went too fast, some of you are struggling with it, simply this. The Bible is God's word and it is authoritative. And you can go back to the Bible to claim the truths of the Bible. And if someone says, well, you're using the Bible to back up the Bible, 
That's because the Bible is the ultimate authority. If there was a higher authority than Scripture, to prove what's in Scripture is true, you'd have to appeal to that other authority. But the Word of God is His Word, and He's the ultimate authority. So there's nowhere else to go for your authority. That's why it's not, though it may be a circular argument, it's completely bombproof. Because if this is God's Word, then you can use it to appeal to its own truth. So I want to give you real confidence um, uh, in God's word because uh, this is ultimately where this question lies. Let's just um, close. I'm going to do two minutes on old earth, young earth just because these are questions that some of you asked and then um, some concluding thoughts. Basically, you you can have one of two views. Um, We touched on this last week. You can believe in what's called a young earth. Um, basically, the, the world was created uh, relatively, uh, very, very quickly. Um, it's not millions of years old. It's more like thousands of years old. Um, I, I guess most people who believe in young earth would hold to a much more literal understanding of Genesis 1 and 2, um, days being literal 24-hour periods. Um, we had a chat about that last week. Um, and there are uh, keen, faithful Christians who hold that view, and I don't have a personal problem with that at all. It's not my view, but I think that it's a perfectly reasonable one. The issue with young earth is you do have to answer the scientific record, so you have to believe that the entire fossil record is the result of the flood, and that the flood was indeed universal, covering the whole world. Um, You also need to explain the complexity within species, because evolutionary change talks about gradual change, but the fossil record shows quite abrupt changes. So uh, it's a faithful biblical understanding, I think, young earth, but it does have its problems. You need to think about that. The other view is a kind of old earth um, of varying degrees that the world potentially is millions of years old. Um, Probably to understand this view, you'd have to believe that there's a big gap maybe between Genesis 1.1 and Genesis 1.2. You wouldn't hold to literal seven days necessarily. Um, Though, If you remember about last week, we had a bit of a talk about maybe the first few days were kind of much, much longer and then shorter days later because of the tenses that we used. It was quite complicated, but... Uh, This view has to believe that there was biological death pre-fall, but not human death. Um, But again, there's a few dangers with this. It's dangerous to only ever take your cues from creation, because we know that creation is fallen, and therefore the fossil record may well lie. Um, And there are gaps in the fossil record. So (laughs) you young earth, old earth, actually, personally, I don't think it really matters. Personally, I believe there is a gap probably between Genesis 1, 1 and Genesis 1-2. There was probably a long, long period of time. I don't think that Genesis 1 is challenging science. I don't think it's challenging the fossil record. Um, but if you think that it does, I don't think that's a problem. I don't think actually the debate about whether the earth is old or young actually really matters. I think that in the beginning, God is the really crucial thing. And where you fall on that line, there are problems both ways. Um, we can discuss that later, but um, we don't want to go into great depth. I just want to conclude, though, just with a few things to help us as we try and approach this subject, because it is big, and I appreciate we may have come in here and got more confused than when we came in, but maybe that, what that will do is serve the one purpose of saying this is a difficult conversation and we need to continue it. Um, I just want to reaffirm that try and allow Genesis 1 and 2 to create a framework for you in which all your other discussions and debates happen and let the framework be rock-solid and allow um, discussion to be fit into this framework because otherwise we're going to get into a God of the gaps kind of thing. Science explains more and more, God gets squeezed out. So that's a helpful thing, I think, to start with. Uh, Second thing which I mentioned last week, um, and I think the week before, I really encourage us all to think about affirming what the Bible affirms. Genesis 1 and 2 is trying to tell us something. It's not giving us answers to all our questions. So let's uphold what it's trying to affirm 
and let's not force it to speak on issues on which it's silent. I think there's a lot of kind of rooting through God's sock straw where God in his wisdom and in his generosity has just said there's an incredible world out there. Go and explore it and you'll never get to the bottom of it. I'm God, you're not. Science is a great gift from me. But affirm what it affirms and let that be the driver. Um, don't make a category mistake, a category mistake um, of pitting the Bible uh, against science because they're trying to do very different things. They, are, they, are, they work together, they can inform one another, but don't pit theology against science because if you do that, Genesis 1 and 2 just gets totally messy. And I think we're not doing uh, reading the Bible as we should. I'd encourage us not to ignore science, particularly if you're a person who just likes to hold a very sort of simple view. And I, did, I said it last week, not derogatory simple, just a very clear, simple view of creation. Don't throw the baby out with the bathwater and just say, well, science has got nothing to help us. The Bible says this. Science is a great gift from God. Um, as John Lennox says in that book I quoted earlier, the more you understand science, art, engineering, the more you could admire the genius behind it. I think there's real wisdom in that. So, um, so don't ignore science. But equally, don't fear it. You'll see scientists who will make great claims, and John Lennox does say elsewhere, as I mentioned earlier, um, claims made by scientists are not always scientific claims. So just because you see on the news or read in a paper a big name who makes a great statement, uh, listen to them and think about what they say, but come back to God's word, because scientists make mistakes, um, God doesn't. Uh, Enjoy science. It is a great um, gift, I believe, from God. But recognize the limits to science. Now, this is the whole true knowledge, exhaustive knowledge. Science, I think, is wonderful, but there are limits to it. And if we try and understand everything, then if you go back to where we started, the kind of flow from the 17th century down, if we believe that we can one day understand everything about everything, then we're really not allowing God to be God. And I think there's something really healthy and helpful about having a humility that just says, you know what, I don't know, and I don't need to know, but it's great fun talking about it and may help me. Um, therefore acknowledge your own limitations. Uh, And the last thing is, I I just want to sort of stress this. Just let God speak. Let God's word speak to you. And this is where my last illustration comes in, and then we'll we'll stop and pray. Uh, You might have seen this illustration before. This is um, Aunt Matilda's cake, okay? Now, science could help us a great deal in understanding Aunt Matilda's cake, Science would explain the different components of the cake, perhaps the processes that went into how the cake was made. But this cake and science can never explain to us why this cake is here. If I want to know why this cake is here, I can't look inside the cake using as much science as I've got to explain why this cake is here. I have to look outside of the cake, beyond it, above it, to understand why this cake is here. You think about Aunt Matilda. She is not the cake but she is the reason for the cake. And so when we come to this whole debate and discussion about science and faith, allow science to help you understand the cake, but go to God for the question of why is this cake here? Hopefully that will really help us as we continue to think about some of these um, big questions together.